Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. And I would like to welcome you to the first inaugural Winter of Wargaming. I'm joined in this by our elite irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Bruce, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello gamers! So, I thought for the Winter of Wargaming, it would be good to start with a classic, and something that's always been on my pile of shame, as it were, as a strategy gamer. Uh, 2003's Course and Pocket from SSG. Uh, and I remember reading reviews at the time saying this was kind of the pinnacle of traditional I go, you go war game design, mm-hmm. yep. hexes galore, operational scale, oh, yeah. and it's the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've been playing it for the last week, and I've been getting into it quite a bit, but I would love to just talk to you a little bit, Bruce, to, you know, as someone who was more into war games back then, if you could just sort of set the stage, like, why was this game such a breath of fresh air at the time? Well, I don't know that it was a breath of fresh air. I think it was a breath of, uh, gosh, I don't know what it was a breath of. I can't even think of a metaphor for it. Was it was it a sip of refined scotch? <laughs> it was. It was. So I think that it's important. Well, before before I answer your question, here's what I want to ask you. Okay. When you played it, did you feel like ah, this is something that you know? I it's it's uh, it's a piece of gaming that that. Uh, that I can clearly see why this was so amazing. I did not at first, okay. but I got All right. there. Okay. All right. So I want to make that that point. We can start out with that because uh, this game really is nothing more. And when I say nothing more, I don't want to minimize it because it really was a fantastic game. I gave it four, five stars, I think. I, I reviewed it for Computer Gaming World. Uh, I tried to find my review, um, but uh, I was unable to find it. Um, but I'm sure that uh, it um, won't inform my conversation any more than other, w- otherwise. Um, the uh, the game itself was not so much some kind of amazing, uh, you know, reinvention of wargaming. It was really kind of the solution to a problem that wargamers had been trying to solve since basically since the computer was invented, which was how they could take their games and make them better by putting them on the computer. So, you know, wargaming has been around been around for I don't know how long now. It's probably 50 years. And, uh, you know, in the old days, uh, definitely when I was a kid and was playing, and it was very hard to find anyone to play against. So computer wargames were something that people wanted to play because they didn't have anyone to sit down. I mean, if you got, got a new copy of some wargame, the chance that I was going to be able to break it out of the box and play it multiple times was kind of unlikely. So it would be great to take some of those games that we had on our shelves that you know, were collecting dust uh, and play them uh, you know, against somebody anytime we wanted, and that would be the computer. Um, but there were technical limitations, uh, obviously. Um, you know, Back in 1970, it wasn't really possible to... Um, to get the kind of uh, presentation that you can get now, or even in you know 2003 when Course and Pocket came out, so everything was a set of incremental steps, and there were sort of a lot of side uh, sort of side paths, and and the gaming, the development of war gaming, you know, was quickly branched out because um, you know the things that the that the computer did really well were not necessarily things that people wanted. Uh, 
or, or I shouldn't say that we weren't things that people wanted weren't things that were in uh, the traditional board war game. You know, really complex systems that tracked, you know, every shell and and you know the penetration factor of certain you know muzzle velocity of a gun. Um, that stuff wasn't uh, part of board gaming because it, it was too complicated. So board gaming had to simplify the games and sort of create these systems that were possible for individuals to play against each other. So what happened was, as I think computer war games developed, designers saw, well, heck, you know, I can do this with the computer. I can track all these, you know, difficult calculations. I can make the maps huge. I can do X, Y, Z that I can't really do with a board game. And and nobody ever really solved the problem of how to take a board game that you could play on your on your kitchen table and just present it for the PC and sort of optimize everything that that was that was part of that war game uh, and sort of smooth out all the rough edges, augment the things that you could augment with the computer. Uh, and kind of create this overall package of, you know, a board war game really optimized for the PC screen. And that's what Course in Pocket is. And I think it's hard for people to appreciate that if they haven't sort of been uh, part of that, immersed in that dynamic from their own experience. Because I'm sure that, you know, the people that pick up this game that have never played a board war game are like, why are these what are these squares and you know why do i have to click what what is this crt why are there 10 of them right i mean there's a whole bunch of stuff that's completely non-intuitive but the but it's very intuitive to someone who's played a bunch of hex-based board war games with you know little cardboard squares so that's the interesting thing, and I'm very interested to to know how it sort of appeared to you when you sat down at this game that sort of was the development of a bunch of mechanics and presentation conventions that you probably weren't really that interested in. I was at, yeah, I was surprised actually how hard it was for me to really even understand what was going on because what's interesting is this yeah this game comes out in 2003 mm-hmm. but the war games i'd played prior to that uh the ones that really stand out in my mind and i, I played a lot of were games like steel panthers mm-hmm. and yep. uh, the operational art of war yep and with those there was a lot of backgrounding of information calculations were kind of not not quite black box. If you really wanted to get into it, you could look into right. what was going on mm-hmm. uh, in in a combat resolution. But it was all sort of it was all sort of hidden, and there was so much math involved mm-hmm. that it was kind of Sanskrit. Even when you did start to break break right. it down, like what happened here. Well, you know, two thousand strength points of whatever. That's very hard to follow. So you just sort of started to play these games very much by feel. Right. Steel Panthers that worked really well because Steel Panthers is a game that is. Um, it's very tactical level. It's very vivid. It's very exciting. You can see what's happening right down there. If a, if a crew walks into the open ground and an MG forty two wa- opens up on them, then you don't need, you know what I mean you don't need math necessarily to tell you why that squad just got cut up. Right. You know exactly what yep. what happened. Um, with a game like uh, Operational Art of War, what was really interesting there is the uh, the the de- the d- design the pr- the 
the info design, the presentation of information was very much inspired by like almost like Windows business apps. Like it's very much a right click to this, pull up mm-hmm. a tooltip menu. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of toolbars are built into that design. So it's all very much like here's how here's how you interact with this game, like any other computer program. It's like it's like Excel with hexes and troops, which is cool. Right. This is so board gamey. And even mm-hmm. in presentation, like yeah, the the fact that you have instead of throwing a ton of math at you, what it, what it has is these combat resolution tables. That it's been so long since I have really delved deep in tables like that mm-hmm. that it took me forever just to understand what exactly I was looking at. Like right. Wait, why does this? Why why does this attack? Why why are my attacks failing? I've got a huge firepower advantage. I got way mm-hmm. more strength going into this mm-hmm. attack. Why aren't I just rolling these guys over? Well, it's because course and pocket is all about shifting the odds. That's that's how they say it. It's it, it's you contribute shifts, right? Uh, which is a huge leap for me because I think a lot of war games I've played have been very much like. Yes, chance plays a role, but it definitely feels like you can shift the odds so decisively mm-hmm. at key points that it almost doesn't matter. Here, this is more of a game that still owes a lot to that war game sort of design where you still got to roll the dice, no matter how lopsided it is. Mm-hmm. Y- You've still got to roll the dice because it can still turn out really surprisingly in ways that seem counterintuitive. I agree. And when you put that in a PC game like Course and Pocket, and I approach it, you know, like like these other war games I've talked about, it becomes really difficult to understand how this thing is modeling combat or resolving it because it is so. It's actually so simple. What it's what it's doing is it's weighing factors, and then you go and it's you know you can if if it's a board game, there would be a bunch of sheets in the back of the manual. Combat exactly resolution right. tables, yep. and you pick one for mm-hmm. the s- situation you're fighting. Yep, that's that's a, and that's a great point. And I I, uh, I think that is let's see that's that's such a, a board game convention, and you're limited, right? I mean, if you, imagine taking out course and pocket, sitting on your on your, on your uh, kitchen table, and you've got seven or eight different combat results tables, right? There's a picket. There's, I mean, there are three different ones just for just for static defenses, like the pickets, light fort, heavy fort. I mean, there are different types of levels of fortifications. And a designer uh, in a board game, he's going to have to print out card. I mean, the way that they would do it, they would make you know cardboard sheets like on, on cardstock, right? And you would have you know six of those, and they probably be back printed. So you would have to have. Uh, you know, all these different combat results tables, and you would have to have them in such a way that you would be able to pick up the card sheet. And, of course, now you're now you're asking the players to shuffle through a whole bunch of cards. They're probably back-printed to save money. So, uh, you know, you can't just lay them out on the table because inevitably the one, the combat results table you need is going to be face down, so you have to flip it over. And it's just, it's such a pain. But here, if you're used to that kind of, of paradigm, if you understand that that presentation convention, and you start playing course in pocket, you're like, oh, there's a swamp CRT, CRT being kind of sell table. There's a swamp CRT. There's a clear CRT. There's a fort CRT, and I can just click a button, click the mouse, and it will take me to the one that I want. I can look at it, and then you sort of internalize that, right? So everything, all that information is presented for you. the The question becomes, you know. Why do you have to have a swamp CRT in the first place? Well, it's, it's the, the, the thing that you pointed out is that it is, a, it is about uh, shifts. It really, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to model 
sort of the uh, the effects of armor and uh, and number and and, and uh, Soviet numbers, and they, they they came up with this thing called shock, which basically was how much offensive oomph. Uh, or a, a sort of a, a mismatch the offense and the defense had that was sort of uh, technical and, and equipment and not directly related to numbers. It could be training too. Um, so yeah, you could you could really have what they were trying to do was trying to say you know if, if you had a bunch of armor against infantry in the open that the infantry didn't have any anti tank defenses, then you had a bunch of shifts right. So that's that's sort of how you you take numbers out of it and you put all this you know equipment against equipment. Um, you know if you have anti tank, then you have different shifts. You know you have negative shifts. If you have tanks, you have positive shifts. They kind of fight against each other. Um, but those are all things that are. Um, that are e- much easier to track. You know, uh, shock shifts like that are a giant pain if you're playing on a kitchen table because you're like, okay, wait. So I've got what? I've got so I have, I have. You have like T34s, right? So that's you get two shifts for that, and then you got a, you know, uh, I think you've got elite infantry, and this is in the clear. But wait, I've got an 88, so that's minus three. But wait, the 88s are it's if if the at this point your scratch pad it, yeah, is just right. like filled. You're, it's like yeah, it's a legal you, pad that's covered. You're, yeah, you're going crazy. But if you can do that electronically and just show players, look, you've got this, you got this, you got this. It it actually makes it easier for the player to sort of keep track of what's going on. Uh, and then as you play, you know, as those numbers get shown to you, you know, repeatedly, visually, I think, um, you can internalize the mechanics a lot faster. It's a lot easier to learn the game than it would be if you were sitting with your friend at the kitchen table and you guys were just looking at the rules and going, okay, wait, you got a minus what? This, there's Because no, there's no visual connection between the counter that you have and the calculations that you're doing. Whereas here, you immediately do the right click and you get the... You get the um, uh, you get the information presented to you, and so all this type of design, this this sort of very uh, computational design, but computation that you're expected to do, right? I mean, you just made a point about uh, games that you can do the math, but it's not worth it. Um, in Course and Pocket, not only can you do the math, but you need to do the math. It's definitely worth it, um, and presenting it in this way is sort of the it finally i think got you to the point where you could comfortably play a game like this and really feel like you could do the numbers so before we get deeper into this game uh i just want to talk a little bit describe what the game is a little bit for people who aren't familiar with it Mm -hmm. and aren't familiar with the battle of uh course and pocket uh so this is so this is a you know, compared to the games we've been talking about, we we discuss Barbarossa a lot mm-hmm. on this show, and I think right. for a lot of reasons, like that's one of these things that war games model Barbarossa, they model Stalingrad, they, they model the great German offensives really religiously mm-hmm. all the time. Yep, this is in many ways um, not what I would consider a campaign that sounds fun mm-hmm. initially. It is a this is a grubby. Uh, you know, this is the military equivalent of. You know, three yards in a cloud of dust football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, you have two kind of beat to hell Soviet and German armies facing off in a late winter. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's midwinter, but there's an early thaw. Yeah. So it's just it's just this awful, like, muddy uh, battlefield. Nobody's going to be doing, like, that many amazing, like, Blitzkrieg type, you know, pincer mm-hmm. attacks or anything like that. Right. This is very much about, you know... It's very it's a very attrition heavy battle. Right. But 
it's all about making that attrition work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bruce, maybe you talk a little bit about what the Battle of Corson Pocket actually was uh, and what its significance was. So, you know, Corson Pocket is uh, is a battle uh, in the um, in basically the the south of uh, of of Russia. Uh, this took place in the uh, the winter of forty four, um, and uh, was basically a, a, it was sort of a comprehensive uh, Soviet uh, offensive in which they tried to use uh, and successfully to some extent use the same kind of uh, at this point in the war the uh, the Soviets had very much uh, improved their operational capabilities so they could do the kind of um, Combined arms, uh, deep penetration, uh, kind of coordination of of, uh, of units that the Germans had done so well, you know, up to this point. Um, so, but they still weren't probably um, equipment wise and and training wise. They still weren't they weren't there, and they obviously had a lot of uh, un- units that were not well trained, mixed in with some of their better units. Um, so it was basically uh, an uh, an attempt to cut off uh, a, a large um, uh, concentration of, of uh, German units, in, which included multiple uh, elite armor divisions, and uh, you know they 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 were partially successful uh, and partially not. And uh, like you said, one of the um, one of the main um, Interesting factors or uh, uh, unusual factors about this was there was an early thaw which both slowed the Soviets down but then caused the uh, the Germans to not be able to uh, extricate a lot of their equipment. So it kind of played against both sides. But um, it's the attempt for with the Soviets to try to coordinate two disparate uh, disparate forces um, to try to close a ring about around the Germans before they can escape. And, uh, you know, the Germans are, 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 can't just, uh, you know, can't just run for it. Um, they have to hold objectives for a certain amount of time. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a game where you're trying to, uh, you're trying to hold on, but you're also trying not to be destroyed for the Germans. That's kind of not that interesting. Uh, it's, it's kind of like playing the Russians in the early war. Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course, Playing the Germans in the early war is a little more interesting than playing the Russians in the late, in the late war because the the disparity in in capabilities is is now is or now in the in 1944 is not as as uh, large as it was in the early war so you don't get a lot of these you know super deep breakthroughs because the the um, uh, the Germans are able to uh, to use their armor to sort of blunt the worst of that and that's that's kind of what playing uh, it, I mean the I thought the um, I thought the game. Uh, course in pocket or the situation the course the game course in pocket depicts that situation is actually um depicted in red turn uh mm-hmm. unity of command and i think it's interesting to see and i think we can talk about how unity of command actually i mean when you when you look and you have to you have to sort of get through all the game systems but unity of command is doing a lot of the things that course in pocket did yes a lot but it's streamlined a number of different things, so the game seems much less. Uh, it does not seem like such a such like a calculational nightmare. Yeah, you know, I was as I was playing it, I was sort of thinking. My first impression was obviously that my God, this is so, this is so fussy and mm-hmm. clunky compared mm-hmm. to Unity of Command mm-hmm. at first. Uh, but what I started to enjoy about it is that. 
Unity of Command never Unity of Command never quite feels as enjoyable when you're dealing with campaigns that are very attrition of I think this is mm-hmm. one reason why the Red Turn expansion kind of left a lot of pe- people cold at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that Unity of Command in 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 the first version uh, in, in the Stalingrad campaign? Mm-hmm. One of the first things you were taught is like if if you take losses, you you you're really screwing yourself. Right. Like if oh you lost two uh, strength points off mm-hmm. that armored uh, unit, well you're you're done. Uh, that's that's right. probably the end of your offensive. Right. So uh, don't don't risk like don't risk anything. That's kind of unity command is very much a battle. A, you want to get find the sure thing, and the fun of Unity of Command is discovering sort of the uh, sort of the planes along which you can cut. Uh, and and get those sure things and keep making progress without taking losses. This doesn't really give you that option. Right. Uh, this is very much a game where your units are going to get used up. Um, and what I started to really enjoy about that is, I guess part of it is just that that degree of authenticity can make camp- campaigns like this mm-hmm. more interesting because really the craft of a campaign like this is about massing firepower preparing you know preparing the attack at the decisive point and mm-hmm. then making sure there's units ready to exploit it right and you really start to dig into what it takes to deliver you know a crushing blow at an entrenched line and then like break through it mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's a you know that, that's different than Unity of Command where it's very much like okay hit this hex okay you destroy that unit right. move on to the one next to it right. here here the enemy units aren't really exploding that much you're not just <laughs> annihilating stuff right. it is this constant like drive them back keep trying to inflict damage you know pull units off the line rotate fresh ones up uh, you become much more uh, you become much more concerned by the uh, you know the the logistical challenge uh, of mm-hmm. keeping this train running right. Right. And I think that, um, you know, at the end, you know, you do have a lot of units that are, you know, the the, the step, um, uh, the step losses that you take. Um, I think it's very, it's it, it feels different than, um, than Unity Command. I mean, in Unity Command, you still, uh, you know, units that don't have a lot of strength pips left uh, get wiped out pretty quickly. I mean, you, you concentrate on them and you destroy them. Um, in, um, in Course and Pocket, that doesn't happen. You have a lot of units that are sort of depleted, but they do keep holding the line, which is much more, I think, historically accurate, if I can use that overused phrase. But um, Course and Pocket does something that, uh, or, or Unity Command gave up one key thing that Course and Pocket, Course and Pocket had to do in order to keep itself authentic. Unity Command just got rid of stacking, right? I mean, Right. You can only have one unit per hex, and that's key because of the presentation, right? You have the little bobbleheads. So if you have—and and for a long time, actually, in, in computer wargaming, stacking was sort of the holy grail. I mean, now we're, now we're talking like 30 years ago, so you know, pardon me on this. But, um, you know, a long time ago, when you had—you know, everything was monochrome and whatever. I mean, people were, were just uh, enthralled by the idea that you could have multiple— units in a single hex uh because it was so hard to 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 depict that and you couldn't really uh you know um because of the way displays were you couldn't just you know you couldn't there were no mice right you're not clicking on something and just you know uh scrolling through the different uh units you had to um you know 
hit a keyboard's command to select something was just terrible. So, um, so course and pocket. But the fact that you can you can stack units means that you can take you know three units that have you know one or two steps left and have a reasonable uh, a reasonable defense in that hacks. And so you do have this kind of attrition kind of blast to hex and blast again and, and rotate new units in so that you can you, know, you that can take the inevitable losses that they're going to take. Um, and I and I think. It, from a from a historical perspective, because Corson Pocket was, I mean, that was it was a, like all large battles on the Eastern Front. It was incredibly bloody, um, and um, you know, to to have the, the idea that there are units that are going to come come through this without ever having taken any damage is kind of ridiculous. Um, so I think the game really does a good job of, um, from a historical perspective, kind of presenting. It presents the history very well. Not only does it does it sort of refine this sort of arbitrary presentation of counters and hexes and steps and CRTs with odds and shifts, but it actually puts it all together to make what I think is a very historically well uh, well designed game. Now, um, it's a game that a lot of people are probably not going to find. Um, it, it like you said, it it takes a while. To dig through it, to realize, you know, what the what the uh, to, to get at the elegance of it. Yeah, and there's there's a couple things. Uh, first, I mean, this is a game you're going to have to read this manual. Yes. Uh, there's there's no getting around it. You're right. going to have to read the 50 page manual. And right. good news, it's a really well written manual. Yes, it is. Um, and then you're probably also going to want, want to read the uh, player's guide. Although mm-hmm. if you read the manual cover to cover, uh, you can actually probably skip the tutorials and just dive right in. Yeah, the tutorial is pretty good though, actually. Yeah, and they're actually kind of cool scenarios too. But uh, the the other the other problem here, and it's it's a little harder mm-hmm. to deal with, is the fact that um, this is just this even even for two thousand three, I don't think this was a particularly sharp looking game. No. Um, and on modern displays, it really looks it really looks pretty rough, and that's because yeah. it's all pixel art. Yep. Uh, pixel yep. art that is also coupled with I don't think is what I don't think it is the sharpest uh, sense of again info design. In yeah. that there's a lot of iconography here that is just really cryptic. There's a lot of buttons and stuff on the interface that you'll look at it and you will have no earthly idea what that button actually does mm-hmm. which is why you need to need to have read the manual uh and refer to it frequently and that right. can be a little frustrating uh but you can start clicking along fairly early but it is just a you, parsing the interface is sort of a consistent struggle just because so much of it is uh a, a little bit obscure and even the map is uh on modern displays uh surprisingly tough to read yeah that's that's um, a shame the, the thing is that i gotta know I, you have um did you play any of the ardennes offensive that comes with the game. I don't know. If it I did not. With, I was okay. no. I was just play. It does. I does. Yeah. This yeah. game actually come comes with uh, an older SSG game that they'd updated with their uh, new system and yeah. uh, art. Uh, but I didn't play any of that. Did you? Yeah. So the thing the thing is a shame is that actually I think SSG went a little too. Uh, I don't know what you would call it, like um, art happy. They started. The, the, I mean, they they did the kind of like hand painted maps, which. I think or I just I feel like the map's too busy. I can't really tell what terrain is what without really kind of struggling a little bit. Well, they they've done things like okay, so they've shaded the snow a little bit so it looks like, you know, snow wood almost. <laughs> is it right. blankets terrain and everything. Right. But the problem is then there's parts of the snow that have like a bluish tint to them. That mm-hmm. is actually not entirely that 
easily distinguishable from the rivers Mm -hmm. that run through the map. And a river in this game is a huge goddamn obstacle. Yes, it is. And so you just get, like, that's that's an easy example of, like, there's things that you really are used to being able to just seeing at a glance. Right. Here you really kind of have to stare at it and figure out what's going on. And if there's units in the area, then it's even harder because right. it really kind of interferes with the ability to read the terrain. Yeah. Yeah, they they did a the the thing the reason I ask about the Ardennes offensive uh, is that it, the first Ardennes offensive game was 1997. Okay? So it's 6 years before this. And that was really I, I thought the revelation. It had had one crippling crippling problem, which is that the email, you could play by email. Um but uh, it uh, it didn't have a replay function, so you couldn't see what the um, what the uh, opponent what your opponent had done. And the reason for that, actually, I, I think, if I recall correctly, was that they were worried about sending having having people to have to send too much data. Oh um, no! Yeah. Um, well, it was 1997, right? So yeah. We, yeah, who knows? You know what your your modem was actually. I, mean, I remember. I think a fifty six k modem was actually fast at this time. At the time, right? Yeah, so, no, it was an era where if you had a like two megabyte save, you you might have some trouble. Right. Yeah. So I think that the issue was that they were trying to minimize the amount of data that they had to send, and so they didn't. Um, they really didn't do a good job of uh, thinking about what was important or not. But but Arden's Offensive was a great. That was in nineteen ninety seven. That was a great game. But the 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 interesting thing about that is that the the map was really easy to read, and I think that as the, as computers sort of as, as that that ramp up happened, you know, from you know ninety seven to two, you know the early two thousands, and displays got much better, and and um, uh, video cards got faster, and and they had you know also the central you know they had set the that was the whole voodoo the era of the voodoo card, and, mm-hmm. and as things got got um, easier and, and, and more economical to present on the screen, I think uh, SSG went a little nuts uh, and, and started doing all this very elaborate map uh, display, which I, I, I personally didn't like. I thought it was too busy and, and, and interfered with the game. Uh, and, and they unfortunately updated the uh, um, Ardennes Offensive. I, for, for the longest time, there was a free downloadable Ardennes Offensive, the original version that was available from SSG's website, and I used to play that instead of the new one because I hated the map. But um, it's interesting what some games have done now. You know, the um, uh, Flashpoint campaign's Red Storm, uh, it has a very sort of, uh, I, I still think it's a little busy, but they, they've they've presented their maps. Uh, the, the, the terrain symbology is very clear-cut. I mean, there's no there's no attempt to, this like photorealistic stuff, mm-hmm. which, uh, which I think is a, a sign that, uh, sometimes that too too much is is uh, is not enough. Um, the <clears throat> the other thing that I that I should point out about this game that I think that won't be immediately obvious is that the SSG games had a pretty um, clear competitor series at the time, which was John Tiller's games. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've played any of those, but they're. Uh, <laughs> Their interface, John Tiller's interface, was was just a nightmare of clicking, um, and to do to to perform any action in a uh, in a John Tiller game, and, and and some of the games were actually you know actually pretty good, but they were so large and there was so much clicking that that doing a you know a turn, I think those a lot of those games were just far too uh, involved for their own good, um, but. Uh, 
the contrast between the interface, I think, in, in Course and Pocket and, and RN's Offensive and the interfaces in John Tiller's games was so stark and such a, such, I mean, this was clearly such a superior interface that uh, I think that's another thing that sort of caught people's attention. Uh, it was like, look, I can, I can actually, you know, I can select a unit and it shows me how far I can move. I can, I can put different overlays on it. Um, I, you know, the, the step losses are, are, are clearly, um, clearly marked the, the tiller games. I think the, the losses were in, in increments of, of, of men. You sort of had to count, see how many, how many tanks you had, how many men you had. Um, the, uh, it was hard to get to the CRT. You sort of played those games by feel very much because there was so, so much combat. Um, I just think that when Course and Pocket came out, it, this decisive battle series was was a very clear choice to create this very board gamey uh, presentation and sort of give you all the possible tools to work through that presentation. Um, and the fact that the Tiller games existed was was a contrast that people probably, if you just picked it up today, you wouldn't realize that. Yeah, and I definitely what, what what I chafed at the most, and and still do really, is um, it's sort of the game's allergy to the right mouse button, <laughs> uh, and and the fact that there's no tooltips, and that's that's fair. In that era, tooltips weren't like standard the way they are now, right? Uh, but my God, do they make it easier to teach advanced concepts without having somebody opening up a manual all the time? Right, right. But the main thing is, yeah, just uh, losing the like not using that second mouse button uh, yeah. very much is, is kind of kind of hurts your ability to. There's so many things that could be useful for right, like you know breaking a stack down and mm-hmm. you know, choosing the unit right out of it. Right, and right. instead, there's a lot of buttons on the interface you have to press instead uh, that you can easily imagine ways to save yourself some of the effort uh, doing the interface differently. But so those are the obstacles to getting into the game. Uh, eventually you, you, you do get past them though. And what you end up with, I think is a really interesting and uh, different kind of war game. And uh, uh, tell me whether you agree with this, Bruce. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like course and pocket is not as maniacally driven by victory locations mm-hmm. as a lot of other war games are. Okay, in, in what sense? I mean, maniacally okay. driven. Explain okay. a little more. So I kind of feel like in most war games you play, mm-hmm. it is really just about, okay, who's going to hold this magic this magic space on the map? Mm-hmm. And whoever holds at the end of the scenario or whatever uh, wins. Congratulations! Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you you collect you collect collect them all. Collect all the victory locations. That's that's job done. Mm-hmm. And really, that's kind of the model that was adopted. I mean, that is that is Panzer General. That is Unity of right. Command. Uh, and even you know more simulational games like uh, the Operational Art of War are still very much about you know go get that city, go take it. Right here. I feel like it's actually much it, it, it teaches you much earlier to be aware of the broader context. It's not just about taking um you know, taking a strategic a, a tactically vital city, though that is going to award points, that is going to determine mm-hmm. the ultimate victory level. But what you become more aware of is that this is a war where the object is to destroy the enemy. Right. It is it is a battle of attrition. It is a it is a battle to destroy a. If you're playing Soviets, it is about destroying the German army. Yes, and that is your foremost goal. And there's going to be locations that are going to contribute to your victory. Mm-hmm. But as you're playing it, you start to realize that your best route to victory really is to grind these bastards to dust. Right. And that's kind of what it turns into. Yeah, there's objectives. There's absolutely right. objectives you're pursuing, but. 
instead of just how do I unlock the key to the scenario? So we we've mm-hmm. talked so much about like puzzle like scenario design, right? Mm-hmm. And I felt like we got a little like. I was frustrated because I wasn't quite able to articulate what my issue was. Mm-hmm. Course and Pocket helped me figure it out. Okay. In Course and Pocket, it doesn't feel puzzle-like because it all feels so organic. It doesn't feel like it's about trying to figure out the magic combination of things I need to do mm-hmm. to unlock the road to my victory location and okay. capture it and hold it by turn seven or whatever. Right. It feels more like... I need to figure out how to shatter this Panzer Corps, break through its supporting infantry, you know, drive a wedge in there, and then pound my guards, you know, my guards' tanks, tank units through right. the middle, cut them off, and start destroying the rest of the uh, German units. Mm-hmm. That's how it feels to me. And that is a much more um, natural process. It, it feels much more like I am reacting to the tactical situation I have before me rather than playing this metagame of, well, how am I supposed to get to this city? Right. And I really like that. Well, I think that I think the, the thing that you said about it being organic is a very good way to put it because the the victory locations. I, I haven't played a, a, a full game of course in pocket in a long time, but um, as I recall, the victory locations that the that the Soviets have to get very much the same ones that you would go after if you're trying to close that pocket. Yep. Right. I mean, the whole point is about keeping the Germans from escaping. So if you're playing it right, you're sort of trying to close the ring on the Germans. And if you do it right, you're going to get to the victory locations. And if you don't do it right, you're not going to get there. So it doesn't really matter. You're not. You're going for the those those objectives have a point. And if you can get, if you can close the ring and then sort of keep the Germans from being able to retreat anywhere, they can you can you can eliminate units. Which, like you said, is the point. The whole point of the course in pocket was for the uh, um, for the. Soviets to you know basically eliminate the third and the I can't remember whatever third Panzer Corps and there was like a I can't remember forty something Panzer Corps anyway they they had, they had uh, all these German tanks that they basically the whole point was to was to destroy the the German combat capability uh, and to which they, they did to a to a large extent because I think the Germans lost an awful lot of armor and had to retreat without it although they did rescue a lot of. Uh, actual men from the pocket but um but that's the whole goal of the, of the game and and so sure i definitely uh, uh think that the, the the and that's part of the game design i mean it, it really does a good job of presenting the situation i think the whole game itself um does a fantastic job of uh presenting the different problems that the the two sides faced uh, uh you know the germans do have some very powerful armor in that game um but you sort of have to use it very judiciously and uh you know you can't get it ground down too much i mean it's going to get ground down but you have to find the right places to 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 trade the losses for uh for effect um and the soviets have to figure out how to break this you know fortified german line and 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 keep feeding uh units to through a breakthrough um without getting too you know going too far and getting cut off and that's you know that's another thing the germans can do if they're uh if the Soviets get a little reckless, you can use that that uh, German armor to to encircle the Soviets, and they that that can be catastrophic for the Soviet player. But um, I think it's just I think the game itself is just a great example of uh, of a design sort of that all came together. And and interestingly enough, it hasn't gone anywhere since, right? I mean. Can you think of another game? I mean, besides, uh, you know, Unity of Command and Unity of Command, it makes a whole bunch of different sort of compromises, and, and it's not. Um, mm-hmm. But there, 
I mean, games have developed in a very, very different direction, right? I mean, War in the East, uh, it ha- sure, it has hexes and units, but it's it's definitely this sort of, you know, black box of, of input and play-by-feel and, and no, you know, you're not doing any calculations in that. We're very, certainly not in the way that you do it in Course and Pocket. Um, you know, the uh, Panther games, um, uh, the... Um, Hell's Highway and the, mm-hmm. the games. Oh, yeah, the Airborne Assault Descendants. Series, yes, yeah. they're, where they're trying to sort of, where, you know, you're, they're 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 making it even more, um, sort of, they're trying to make it pr- present it in a in a more realistic fashion. There, the sure there there is military symbology, but it but it's it's uh, uh, it's meant to present the way that the, the troops are actually interacting, um, rather than you know there are no hexes. You know, you you sort of. Uh, have front lines, um, you know, you give orders, you have the orders um, get executed when they can based on the, you know, the communications and where the command radius is and that kind of thing. Um, and even, you know, even something like um, uh, like Flashpoint Campaign's Red Storm, I mean, that game has hexes, it has little counters, it has little numbers on the counters, but the way the game plays is completely different because the the idea is that um, I mean, you could you could have made that game a simple, you know, okay, I move these guys, uh, they have this much strength, you know, here's the odds, roll the dice. But I think every, people kind of, I think in computer games, people are kind of over that. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, that's not that's that's clearly not what people want. Now, they still want it in terms of board games. Yes, I mean, you have to have that because you can't do anything else. But I think I think the computer on on the PC anyway. I think games have very much. Uh, evolved to the point that the the audience really wants a product that does something that the board games can't. And I think that what Course and Pocket did was it said, look, this is what the computer can do to a board game. And I think what the audience now is saying is, I want to see what a computer can do to a war game. And those are two different answers. And I think that People are, people have just basically decided that sure you know it's great that that uh, computers can do board games but we don't really need them to do that in that way anymore it's 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 uh, it's moved beyond that or in a different direction. I think it's a case where some people want things that necessarily aren't always good for them. They're certainly assumed this is good because look at all this complexity, look at all this ostensible simulational fidelity. Right, I'm getting which really is. Kind of a kind of a tough. It's kind of a dubious prospect in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. I mean, there, there's a lot of things. You know, more math does not equal better better outcomes, more real, more historical outcomes. Uh, but I think there's also something to be said for a game like this, where you are so down to the nitty gritty of the decision making, where it is so it is so easy for you to parse what's going on mm-hmm. that you feel like connection with the variables you're dealing with in a way you just don't in war in the East war in the East. It's, it's cool in war in the East. You feel like you are commanding army group center or something like that. And right. you know, trying to figure out how am I going to destroy, uh, you know, the 70 or 80 Soviet divisions I've got between the remaining between me and Moscow, mm-hmm. uh, before, before the rains come. Right. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a neat feeling. Those are, those are fun shoes to be in. Right. What I like in Course and Pocket is you're down there looking at a position, like a river crossing that's anchored in a uh, like fortified strong point. And mm-hmm. my God, strong points in this game are just brutal. Uh, 
uh, right. just trying to take the these brutal. Mm-hmm. But you you start to you start to get really close to okay. Well, here's what here's what having an extra long range artillery bat- uh, battery within range of this uh, this battle mm-hmm. that's what it's going to get me. Right. I click this button and I commit this bombardment to this battle, and okay, this the, these the outcomes just shifted. I can like this is now the probabilities I'm looking at are changing, and you start to. You you start you, you you hit a point where you're able to start doing this in your head a little mm-hmm. bit and start right. reading things in your head in a way that you never really are in a war in the east. It's very much you play by feel. Well, if it looks like these units are going to break through the Soviet line, eh, they they probably will. And if they right. don't, well, shit happens. It's war. Right. Right. Here you, you're looking at the map and you're like, okay, this the you know I've I've identified the weak point because I know that those guys are defending clear terrain. There is swampland, you know, anchoring the right flank that's lightly mm-hmm. defended by a picket line. I can use that swamp to cross the river, flank them, and in your head, you know how you know how the, all that will play out because you've done that math now before. Right, right, and and it, so it's. I mean, and and I think that in terms of of of. I mean, it's a great it's a great observation because what it shows you is the game can can really demonstrate to you. How the how the different military systems affected a battle, right? Just like you said, having long range artillery, having having armor in the open without anti tank guns on the defense, right? I mean, the, the shifts are huge. Um, the uh, the game sort of presents that to you. So as you play the game, you're like, oh wow, you know, I, I wish I had, you know, I, I wish I had some engineers here. Um, or you know, I wish I had some kind of anti-shock here, and, and you sort of see the kind of decisions that you would make. Whereas, in some of these you know behind-the-scenes calculations games, you kind of think you know why things are working, and so you you create these uh, um, you know sort of rules of thumb. Well, you know, I I need to have uh, you know this kind of preponderance of force, or I need to have this kind of you know these. Uh, this number of tanks, but you never really know, and and you don't. It doesn't sort of cement for you what that combat really is about, and it does. It's not as much of a historical teaching tool. And I think that you know, it, at least initially, uh, war games were sort of um, you know they're for people who were interested in the history, but they wanted to learn more about it. And and the designers were actually, I think there was some. Uh, if you read the designer's notes, and we had been before the podcast started, we were talking about this uh, how how it's great to read the uh, the designer's notes in the manual that you don't see as much now uh, anymore. The um, uh, the designer's notes were the first thing I always read when I bought a new board game. Uh, you know, I'd flip to the last page of the rules and I just read the designer's notes. And the designer's notes would basically they weren't so much the history of the battle; they were the history of the battle, but they would also talk about how the designer tried to incorporate elements that were found in the historical event into the game mechanics. And I think it's a lot easier for the designer to show that and to, to, to demonstrate these things when you have overt systems that you, you're doing the calculations, you're seeing how the, you know, clicking the air support button or clicking on the uh, heavy artillery button changes the battle that you're about to fight. Whereas in the, you know, the, the sort of um, black box games, you sort of feel like you're writing history and you, 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 uh, you're experiencing things, and there's a lot of uncertainty, which probably is is a little bit more uh, in line with what a real commander would do. But uh, there's this element of of, um, of sort of undefinedness 
that, uh, that I always found a little bit, uh, little bit off-putting. But that's just my particular preference. It's clear that this sort of uh, paradigm of presentation is, is, is not the way that people want to play their, um, their war games on the computer. Although, you know, I, I don't know. Because I've always sort of like is that is is the I mean we both we both hung out on wargaming forums mm-hmm. we we've both sort of seen the sort of uh you know sniffing one's nose <laughs> at games that aren't serious enough that right. aren't that aren't like you know down you know that aren't rivet countery enough mm-hmm. um and I kind of feel like when I was getting into the hobby when i when I was sort of trying to figure out what I might want to play mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And you go to these people who ostensibly, well, they know what the best games are. <laughs> and they're kind of, you know, shitting all over some of the more accessible games mm-hmm. uh, until, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't want to play that one. You want to play Gary Grigsby's War in the Pacific. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, there, there's sort of this, um, this, this fetishization of detail that, we, that we've talked about before. But I, but I think... You know, you you can't discount the 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 fact that a lot of um you know sort of the wargaming elite kind of drive the conversation and sort of drive tastes a little bit, mm-hmm. and I think there's a reason that you know a lot of people uh, who don't consider themselves wargamers played games like Panzer General, played games like um, Steel Panthers, and aren't playing many war games these days. And yeah, that, admittedly, that's also because a ton of other things shifted in the market. Like mm-hmm. there's there's a ton of other factors behind that. But I, I I don't think it helps that games like this have become so few and far between, mm-hmm. where you kind of you know, where you know to be a wargamer, you kind of get comfortable with these black box systems mm-hmm. uh, and not really totally grokking how the game works. But if you're coming to it fresh and you don't really understand why things are happening, mm-hmm. um. You know, it's really helpful in a game like this to just be able to go to a manual and see right there, and you know, the, in in simple math, what's going on, right. as opposed to uh, some of the you know baroque equations you find in more sophisticated war games. Right. Well, I think I mean it. It may be that the um, that the iPad takes over that place, right? I mean, I don't know how how Shenandoah's games are going to get. You know, as as Shenandoah releases more games, whether they, you know, wh- whether they will build themselves sort of a niche um, in uh, in the uh, you know in the in the lighter end of wargaming that's not you know Panzer Corps, um, the sort of you know attempt to his- to really historically model situations, but do it you know with a with a simpler system. Um, because I mean, they're not going to all going to be, you know, crisis and command games, right? I mean, the, the battle, of the bulge drive on Moscow, El Alamein games are, are one series that they're doing, but you know, they're doing others. They're doing, uh, Gettysburg. Um, I'm sure they'll have other designs that they, they haven't announced yet, but will they'll be publishing. Um, and I'm curious to see whether, whether their take on, cause that, I mean, that's stuff that is very much, you know, why did this happen? We'll just look at the rules. The rules are right there. Um, and, you know the the Shenandoah games are actually if you if you were to print out the rules, and 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 put them in a rule book, I mean they're not just, I mean ultimately the gameplay is fairly simple, but there's there's a fair number of rules that uh, I mean it's not just your basic introductory war game. I mean there's a, there's some stuff going on, um, and so I wonder whether people just find that more acceptable because of the of the medium that 
PC war games really need to have? Because, I mean, some of the PC war games that I'm playing are just, I mean, I don't really understand why, you know, there's this, this um, uh, the, the Hearts of Iron trend towards um, area movement, which I really dislike in, in the way that it's done. I mean, I don't mind area movement what do you at mean all. by area movement? Just the sort of arbitrary dividing. Um, it's like uh, Europe. This thing I hate about Europa Universalis is that that things Careful. are <laughs> okay. So I mean, the division of the map into arbitrary political, um, arbitrary political spaces that don't correspond to you know what you would expend to to move through something, right? I mean, th- there's a um, area movement is actually really can can really simplify tactical games because you can take terrain features for example like a ravine uh and you can make the ravine one space so you know going going up or down that ravine uh is very fast but then getting out over you know over the you know maybe there's a hill there that that takes a lot of uh time to traverse so that hill can be uh a space um that borders every part of the ravine but getting up and out is actually two moves, whereas moving down the ravine is just one move, right? So, I mean, you can you can sort of uh, um, simulate the time and effort that it takes to move from one space to another without having to, you know, divide everything up into hexes and, and make movement points and things like that. Um, but when you expand it to a large area like, uh, uh, you know, like Europe, and then you know, it's, it's not clear to me why if Württemberg is small, but, you know— Silesia is large, why it takes the same amount of time to move between each one of them. And uh, just because something is, a, something is a large political entity moving into that space. And now I know that European Universalis doesn't quite do it this way, but it, it kind of does. Um, and, and Hearts of Iron is the same way, that, that they're just these, these sort of arbitrary spaces that, are, that don't really reflect the, um, the time and uh, capability that it would take to move across it. So uh, I think that the the way that games are getting presented, there's the, I, I don't I don't quite understand why some of the things like the the combat uh, simulation needs to be so detailed, yet a lot of the other things kind of just are done for arbitrary presentation purposes. I'm not sure if that 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 complaint makes sense, but it makes sense yeah, I mean, to me that- in my head. Yeah, I don't. I'm not necessarily sure. I totally agree with you about uh, about it with regard to Europe and Universalis. Uh, I've always sort of felt it kind of hangs together. It's one of the, it, you know, it's it's compromise. I think it's compromise that works out more often than than mm-hmm. not given the scale. I think it might become a little more problematic in a game like Hearts of Iron, which is a little more of a war game mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, that's is true. a little more concerned with the movement of troops and mm-hmm. armies and and you know divisions and you know multi pronged attacks. At that point, yeah, it begins to become a little problematic. In a game like EU four, it's kind of following this model of look, you only have a handful of armies out, mm-hmm. and it's really about you know just reaching that decisive point, cornering the enemy, and uh, you know leveling his strongholds. Right. But uh, there's one last thing I wanted to make about point I wanted to make about the simplicity here, and that is um, it actually makes losses interpretable in a way that makes sense because okay so like your average unit in this game only has uh three or four steps uh right. which are basically like hit points mm-hmm. and the great thing is when you lose when, when you see the combat results table and everything it's like okay so the attacker could lose one like the most the, like the result you end up with is attacker loses one defender loses one but defender retreats right um 
that's a pretty significant exchange of strength, mm-hmm. um, or or it could be. It depending it depends on the scenario. But I at least know. I always know what that that step is going to mean. I always I always know what that loss really means for for my army. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you compare that with, uh, you know, games like the Operational War, games like um, uh, War in the East. The the figures you get in terms of you know mater- meta material lost are are so huge mm-hmm. uh, that it, it can be hard to gauge exactly what the significance of these expenditures actually was, and it's made even more complicated by the fact you often have equally robust um, supply and replacement models mm-hmm. that are flowing in a certain number of placements every turn. Right. Uh, so how much do they, like, do you really need to take these losses seriously? It, it can be very hard to feel your way through that. Mm-hmm. Here it's very simple. That step you lost is going to stay there, and that's that's something you're going to have to eat until you get one of your precious handful of replacement units showing up, and you have mm-hmm. to very carefully decide where this group of replacements is sent. Right. Uh, and that's that's something that, you know, you know, it's, it's a case of simplicity leading to a more realistic way of playing because you just become more... You become more conservative as a commander uh, in a way that, you know, games that operate on these, uh, you know, on like accurate historical scale can kind of encourage kind of a weird profligacy or unawareness of what you're giving up. Because who knows how many panzers you really have in, you know, army group center. Who's counting? Right. Uh, But here you sure as hell are counting how many steps of armor you've got uh, in this one sector. Right. I think that's I think that's a very uh, very much in line with you know everything is presented. Uh, you see why things work. You see you taking losses. Um, it's hilarious that you know these things like step losses. Um, they uh, they're they're probably now you know forty years old as a mechanic. I think one of the first games to actually do them as a board game was a game called Anzio, and in those days, of course, in board games. You had to have a different counter. Those Anzio counters, as I recall, were not back printed. So, and you're you're simulating the campaign in Italy, right? So it's a very attrition heavy campaign with you know units. It, it wouldn't work if you just blew up a unit and got to advance a bunch of hexes because that's not how the campaign uh, happened. So you know units would take losses, but they would stay in place or they would you know give up a minimum amount of ground. So in order to show those losses, you had to uh, take a – when you set up the order of battle, you had a number of units, but each unit had a variable number of steps. So you know some of the, some of the German uh, uh, panzer units would have like six or seven steps. And so you had six or seven counters for that unit. And you would put it on the order of battle, and then each time it took a step loss, you would take the counter and you'd put it back on the order of battle, and you'd take the you know the weaker counter and you'd put it back on the map. And if you were going to replace something, you would take the weaker counter, put it back on the map, and take the stronger counter back. Uh, and so you had these you know these these long order battle sheets with a lot of counters, but you really didn't have all that many units on the map. But I think it really you know up until that point, you really didn't have much you could do to a, a counter you could either destroy it you could retreat it or sometimes you'd have you know disrupt it you know you put a disruption counter on it uh and then it would you know, be half dead uh, and then you could make it dead and it's kind of like an artificial step but um you know a lot of the stuff that was worked out in games 40 years ago and you know it took horse and pocket in 2003 so you know 
30 years after, I think Anzio came out in 74. Uh, so 30 years later, um, Course and Pocket sort of took all these very well-tested conventions, put them all together, presented it in a way that was, you know, sort of easy to get, um, and said, hey, look, here's the, you know, here's how a board game plays on the computer. And I think that that's the thing that, uh, you know, a lot of people reacted to. Now, um, I will make another point about the the critical reception of, uh, of course, in Pocket is that, you know, I think a lot of the people reviewing it were these kind of old-style board gamers. Um, you know, so you saw, you know, PC gamer William Trotter reviewed it, said it was, you know, the best uh, PC war game made, you know, period. And then I think I said something very similar. You know, Bill Trotter and I are both old-time, hardcore board war game players uh, that have seen this kind of thing a hundred times. And it would have been very interesting to see, you know, somebody who had, ne- you know, who was a war gamer, you know, a computer war gamer who had never played this kind of game. And what their reaction would have been to it. I know there was a, there were a lot of, you know, complaints about people reviewing. Oh, and Jeff Lackey reviewed it for GameSpot. I, I, had, I had looked it up before we did the podcast. Uh, and Jeff Lackey's another board gamer from way back, you know. So, um, but, you know, there were all these reviews about, you know, I can't, I can't tell what's going on. And, you know, this game is so opaque and, and the units look terrible. And, and in some ways, yeah, the units actually did look terrible because it wasn't a great looking game. But um, I'd just be interested to see, not from a sort of really grossly uh, non-war gamer perspective, but from somebody who played war games, understands the history of the war game, um, but wasn't so uh, invested in the board war game model and what that person would have thought because there's certain certainly um, a lot of conventions here that don't have to be that way. They just are because that's how uh, games sort of developed over time. So, and I guess, I mean, you uh, you ultimately you ultimately liked the game. Am I correct? I did. I mean, my ma- my main issue with it is just presentation, uh, and I really wish like I understand it can be tricky with uh, you know pixel art games but a resolution patch would really uh a, yeah. a, a resolution update to this would be really nice yeah uh, i gotta sure say this is like we, we we talk about it all the time on the show but it's it, it was another case of like um you know so i bought this i bought this from matrix mm-hmm. and um you know it, it, it it's like wow for you know for for a 20 dollar game it's like there's not really a lot of upkeep going into this this is just you know, it's here's what it was, right? Um, and good luck with that on a modern system, right? Uh, which is just a little bit like you know, I don't want I don't want to keep flogging Matrix for this, but it's a mm-hmm. case of, well, this is a cool back catalog you have here, but you know, parts of it like this is a game that sort of seems to be suffering from neglect and and could probably you know do with a little you know TLC, yeah. Uh, but I I did ultimately like it, um, and you know when you were talking about when you were talking about designer notes that that brought one other thing to mind. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you if you read the designer notes, uh, this is one of the. It's not it's not typical to read a war game so clearly written by a group of designers who were kind of cynical about the Wehrmacht, who were kind of cynical about the German war effort. Hmm. Um, this is not this is this is a game that's not written by a bunch of uh, you know 
Gadarian Manstein uh, fanboys. <laughs> right. This is a this is a game written by a bunch of people who think that you know it's it's a bit of a re- revisionist account in some ways. It's okay. Look, the, the, we know there's this history of saying, look, the Germans only lost when they were hopelessly outnumbered right. and the Soviets were incompetent, and if it hadn't been for their insane numbers, they couldn't have done a damn thing. Uh-huh. Uh, so you know that's that's the story of the Eastern Front, and so that the oh, the only thing we want to talk about then uh, for designers like that is these battles where like the Germans are beating the odds or it's like Barbarossa where the Germans are just kicking ass and taking names. Right. This is a game where it's coming from a very different perspective. It's kind of a, it's a game that is reappraising uh, the performance and growth of the Red Army over the course of World War II. And this is kind of a study in one of a, a formative moment in the Red Army's history because after this, they're going to start getting much, much better at right. these kind of combined operations. You know, if you compare what they'd achieved from uh, offensively, what they'd achieved in the years since 1941 to this to this battle, they'd actually not done a whole lot. They'd really profited more by the German errors uh, rather than doing a being terribly adept on the offensive right uh but it seems like this is this is a case where you know after this campaign they're going to start really gobbling up german territory Mm -hmm. uh and they're not going to stop right so the reason that you uh you you characterize that very well and one of the reasons for that is that the research was done and i think there's a lot of input in this game by a fellow named jack rady and Jack Rady is uh, a guy who founded a company called People's War Games. And Jack Rady is uh, very sympathetic to a more Soviet-centric uh, perspective on the Eastern Front. And uh, he, uh, he designed a lot of games which definitely were done from, uh, from the Soviet perspective. And uh, he definitely, um, he's kind of the, uh, I, in a sense, and I don't want to overstate this, but he's kind of the war game version of David Glantz, uh, where his sort of historical angle is that the Soviets uh, kind of got the short end of the historical interpretation stick. Uh, just like you said, that you know, there's this sort of myth of the Wehrmacht, and the Soviets were very much better than that. Thank you. And um, I, I, I um, be careful not to to take this into any political arena. Simply that uh, I'm not surprised that a game that Jack Rady would design would have that kind of um, uh, that kind of uh, angle. And um, I, it's interesting that Jack Rady. I mean, he was doing he founded people's war games in the i can't remember, it was the 70s or 80s uh well before the soviet archives were open because i know a lot of glances work that's uh, and for for reader uh, listeners who don't know what i'm talking about david glance is a, is a is a military historian who's done a lot of uh investigation into the soviet archives and is sort of telling the story of the Eastern Front very much from uh, sort of... He's kind of a revisionist historian uh, based on his reading of the archives, which I'm sure is very rigorous uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of German setbacks that had been sort of glossed over uh, in previous accounts uh, 
like especially like the 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 battles around Smolensk uh, that uh, that led to the, del- the you know fatal delay uh, and on the t- uh, attack on Moscow and ultimately the diversion towards Kiev. Um, that was the sort of glances um, thesis is that that was simply because the Soviets were that tenacious on defense, and uh, he's been going through the archives and and and. Su- you know, basically supporting all uh, much more, um, much more Soviet-centric uh, view of that military history. So I think Jack Rady uh, is on that that side of the equation. So you've very correctly identified the way in which Corson Pocket was uh, presented, and uh, it makes for an interesting game. Do you think he overstates the case, though? Do you think it overstates? Well, the game doesn't necessarily state the case. the 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 game, the game doesn't make quite as clear an argument as the as the designer notes do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the The game is a little more of a what seems a little more like a neutral account of look. Here's two exhausted armies pounding the crap out of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think do you think the uh, do you think Rady and Glance overstate the case a little bit? I don't. You know. <laughs> Here's the, the the ultimate answer to that question is I have no freaking idea because A, I wasn't there, and B, <laughs> and B I haven't read the primary sources. Everything that yeah. I've read is somebody, you know, I just read a book um, by, uh, gosh, what's this guy's name? Uh, uh, Showalter, uh, American historian who just wrote a book about the Battle of Kursk. And, uh, you know, there, there are multiple stories about Kursk and, you know, now the Soviets, as I, as I go through my Amazon, um, my Amazon rounds every few weeks and just see what's coming up to in the publication schedule, I see a lot of things that are, uh, you know, people with, with Russian names, uh, publishing, you know, the, uh, the updated account of, you know, the battle of X or some battle that I had not really heard of, or that has little documentation that they're now, you know, digging into the archives, um, you know, some of the things that they're talking about are, you know, they expose the, uh, you know, sort of so like uh, the Vyazma and uh, Bryansk pockets. They t- there are these, you know, sort of exposés of Stalin's, you know, criminal stupidity and incompetence um, coming from the Soviet side or the, for the Russian side, sorry. And um, so I think that there's certainly the, 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 the pro-German myth of the Germans' invincibility uh, except in the face of overwhelming numbers, uh, story is being revised. Uh, I don't know where the truth lies because, like I said, A, I'm not yeah. a historian. B, I wasn't there. And C, I can't compare the primary sources. But I think it's a very interesting discussion, and it just means that I get to read a lot more books about uh, the Eastern Front. So that that can't be uh, can't be a bad thing. But I think what is nice about having a perspective like that from a war game designer is it does sort of encourage, like, let's look at other campaigns. Because, like... In a lot of, there's sort of a tendency of, of, of you know, like panzer porn mm-hmm. uh, in, in wargaming. And when it stops being so fun to, you know, be blitzkrieg around Europe, uh, the war games start to become a little more sparse. And, uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't seem like you, you'd see as many, uh, you don't, you don't see as many, uh, games covering sort of the, the, the Wehrmacht's, uh, holding actions, uh, you know, you know, in campaigns like this, or or the Soviets really breaking them down, um, unless you have this perspective. Well, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's just something inherently uh, interesting about the uh, 
people who play war games are going to be more many of them are going to be more interested by pushing tigers and panthers around than they are by you know moving around you know volksturm divisions mm-hmm. uh just because it's you know the situation is not as interesting i mean you want to use uh interesting military equipment and have you know it's 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 fun to have more capability than less capability uh and you know there's some interesting um historical actions and there are some that are less interesting so i um yeah but i mean yeah there yeah there's definitely a panzer porn element to it but i mean who doesn't like a picture of a blown up tiger tank blown up i love it yeah (laughs) i like it so uh something else i just wanted to talk about before we before we sort of leave off here Mm -hmm. is that this is a game where i find there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting counterattacking happening is kind of what i'm getting at it's like in unity of, in a game like unity of command uh you know the, the the ai is really not going to attack that much because really it's its primary goal is to delay you to deny you victory right uh and so in general uh, unless you really give it an opening and it will t- it will exploit gaps um but in general it will sort of fall back on the defensive and not like not offer you um aggressive opposition mm-hmm. in, in some ways here i'm very impressed by how like the ai i don't see this enough i guess in in war games in general the ai is really ruthless about like turning around delivering a hard counter punch against Mm -hmm. one of your spearheads yep and then getting the hell out of there uh before you can sort of you know form up and punish them now if you can if you can pin one of those counter-attacking panzer divisions in place Mm -hmm. and destroy it that's awesome that's a huge win uh, but in general, you get more of that. You get you have to be much warier of what's on the what are the forward elements here. What is that, what is on my front line now? Mm-hmm. Because I can't just drive my armor out ahead of me and say it's going to be fine. It's a good strong armor unit. It'll it'll hold the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if a counterattack shows up, those guys could get destroyed. Uh, and it's really impressive just to see how the AI is able to even in the process of slowly withdrawing and retreating, able to constantly turn around and deliver these sharp, hard blows uh, to delay you. And mm-hmm. not just passively delay you, but actually delay you by just doing hard damage. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's the SSG AI. I, think just, I just think Roger Keating uh, is probably uh, one of the masters of the traditional board game artificial intelligence i mean that's all i can say i mean i just remember how uh how good ai has been in games that i've uh you know played by ssg i mean carriers at war was the class not the not the remake but the very original carriers at war was a classic example where it was just so hard to beat that game and i asked roger i was like roger that game's got to be cheating he's like nope it does not cheat uh and so uh this, I mean, I've, if I found the same thing in the Ardennes Offensive, and I found the same thing in, in, in Course and Pockets. So, I mean, AI can be beaten, but it does do things. I mean, it does know uh, how to do certain things that it has to do, and it, counterattacking is one of them. And as, as a player, you have to do that, too. Um, and it, it sort of teaches you. Uh, I mean, this is a, one of the few war games, I think, where you can actually learn important things about how to play the game from the AI, which is something I've almost never said. Yeah, that's a really good point. The the first time I had a um the manual had warned me mm-hmm. about not trying to defend with armor in mm-hmm. open ground. Mm-hmm. Uh that really you need anti tank guns mm-hmm. and infantry to mm-hmm. form a stable line. 
and I was in. I was so excited to mm-hmm. see like the German line open up that uh-huh. I was just like, "No, go to your maximum movement. Go. We'll right. we'll cut them off, and right. I will form the Corson pocket." Right. And then, uh, you know, suddenly like five or six German uh, mechanized armored uh, formations appeared out of nowhere. Uh-huh. I'd known they were out there because you can see them in the distance. Right. Uh, you can see the presence of German units. Right. Uh, long before you ever see what the hell is out there, so it's uh-huh. actually got a very cool staged fog of war thing going on. Right. But so you'll be you'll be cruising along, and be like, "Yes." I'm I'm on fire now. They can't stop me, and then suddenly this 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 fist will come out of nowhere, yeah, clobber right. you. Yep, and then it will then those units will just go. They'll, right. they'll be gone before right. you can even figure out where they ended up. Yeah, just they're just pulled back and yep. they're going to do it somewhere. Yep, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's it's a very it's a, it's a great. I mean, I I I, uh, I didn't get a chance to play too much of it um, before the podcast. Most recently, I mean, I played the heck out of it when I when I. I first played it, but uh, I was just playing a little bit, and I just was clicking through, and and uh, uh, I remember how how much fun that game really was. How much I enjoyed just playing that uh, game. I certainly got uh, beaten multiple times by the AI. Um, it's just a it's just a great. It's sort of the culmination, and I, I think I wish I wish it could be redone. Um, like you said, with with better display, I'm sure that. Uh, SSG. I don't know that SSG is really actively making games now. Um, yeah, but it would be. I mean, Roger Keating could go back and. I mean, he's the programmer. I don't, uh, Steve Ford did the art direction for um, a lot of those SSG games. Uh, so I don't know what the possibility would be to update it. I'm sure that's not much. But uh, I mean, it's it's <clears throat> ultimately it's economic expenditure uh, with probably little uh, chance of much economic gain. So I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I don't blame them for for not uh, updating it, but well, we, we should observe. Anyway. I mean, uh, SSG's president uh, was Ian Trout, and he passed yes. away a couple years ago. He did, unfortunately, very unfortunately, sadly. Yeah, and it doesn't look like the uh, site's been updated since then. So yeah. it looks like they might be, uh, if not defunct, then just not no longer active. Yeah, I mean, uh, Roger Keating is still is still you know he's around, and and I I've. Um, I haven't heard from him in a while, but I uh, should probably drop him a line and see see what uh, if SSG has anything planned. Not that he's necessarily going to reveal anything to me, but uh, I just I, I I do think that the loss of of uh, Ian Trout um, probably very sad. I mean, he was it's not he wasn't that old. Um, can't remember what the I think he may have died of cancer, but uh, yeah, he died of cancer, yeah. and I think he was only like uh, I think he was only like fifties, I think, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm sure that you know Roger and, and Ian had worked together a long time, and to lose your partner, and especially to something like that, just kind of probably took a lot of the, you know, impetus out of that business. And that's you know certainly uh, they they put together so many games, so many wonderful games together that uh, it's just sad to to see them not making them anymore. But uh, I'm glad that we were able to uh, to spend some time talking about you know one of their real uh, real treasures. I think. And I'm glad that you were able to uh, to see the to see the value in the game, uh, even this you know 11 years on. Well, you know it's interesting. I think you know unlike uh, unlike some other genres, I think wargaming things don't necessarily age the same way. It, mm-hmm. You know the the march of progress is is not so uh, progressive necessarily right. in all cases, and you see that really clearly with games like this, where the presentation might be lacking. Uh, but the design has some really interesting things that you know it would be 
it'd be nice if we saw a little more of that sometimes. Uh, so anyway, hope you enjoyed this first installment in our winter of wargaming. Uh, Bruce and I have some very exciting things planned, and uh, I think we'll be spending a little more time on the Eastern Front before this winter is over. Well, I'm sure that will be the case. Uh, until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night. Good night.